Good morning. I want to speak today on the greatest day in human history. We'll pose that as a question. Of course, the answer varies according to the point of view of the one who's answering the question. There, in fact, is a book that bears that for its title, The Greatest Day in Human History, written by Nicholas Best in 2006. The subtitle tells us, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the First World War finally ended. I had two great uncles that were casualties, one killed and one suffered through a horrendous mustard gas attack. And I had family on the other side who were shooting at them. Others would call the end of the Second World War um, the greatest day in history. And those are milestones, and certainly those who suffered through them. It was a great day, but it's not the greatest day in history. Others have pointed to the 20th of July, 1969 writing that that was the greatest achievement ever when man first set his foot on the moon. And it, again, it was thrilling and a testament to intellect and to bravery. Yet I suspect those who were part of the Apollo missions would admit we are standing on the shoulders of those who went before us. No, that's not the greatest day in history. Another is posited that it is the day in which man attained to the age of reason. And he spoke about how he wished he had been there for that heady experience of, of thought and, and philosophy as man was elevated in this evolving times. Uh, I'd say rubbish, but you might be shocked to hear me say that actually I, I think he's closer to the truth than the previous offerings. When man received reason, indeed it was one of the greatest days in history, but that occurred when the Creator gave it to mankind as a gift when man was created. Finally, in 2012, there was a movie. I never saw it, I don't see very many movies, but it was called Jeff, Who Lives at Home. I thought that's curious, most people live at home, don't they? In this movie, this 30-year-old man lives in the basement of his mother, and he has a recurring dream in which his father repeatedly asks him, Jeff, what is the greatest day in the history of the world? But before Jeff can answer, his father declares, Today, Jeff, today, today is the greatest day in the history of the world. And indeed, today could be the greatest day in the history of the world for some of us. It really depends upon your point of view and what, as we consider what is truly the greatest day in the history of the world. History comes from the Greek word historia. It just means to inquire Knowledge gained by investigation. We don't tend to think of history as that, but that's what history is. It shouldn't be about gathering knowledge to satisfy curiosity, but rather that we might reflect upon it and improve our future. And then that bears repeating. We should always seek to be improving our future. And that's my intent as we speak about the greatest day in history. The famous mathematician, philosopher, Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. I think he actually said, I doubt myself, therefore I am. Uh, I might add to that, um, we're here so we obviously exist. And we reason, therefore we do transcend. I believe we transcend what mankind would call nature because in all nature only man has the ability, that is that gift, to reason. 
Animals are sentient, they do think, but not in any way that resembles what we do. They can't synthesize thought. Uh, that is to associate disparate facts and come to a, a logical conclusion, make intelligent choices. Also unique to we humans are the ability to not only be thrilled by beauty, but to actually create it. Those things which we might say thrill the soul. Uh, sadly, just because we have reason doesn't mean we use it wisely all the time. We have physical evidence all around us, and we have recorded history before us. So therefore, I say we should attempt to understand that what has gone on before us and use that to improve our, our future. You know, we think about that. Those are tangible things. But in addition to these tangible abilities we've got, we do have these intangible attributes as well. Conscience, joy, sadness, and appreciation for things of beauty. Again, those things which stir the soul. Those abilities at first blush might not seem to fit in. They might conflict with those things which are rational, which are physical, which we can see, feel, touch, and, dis and define. Yet, it is the synergy between those type of abilities and our ability to measure things that allows us not only to arrive at these complex thoughts, but it's what propels us, it's what thrills us, and gives us this curiosity to learn and build. You know, the only truly important history is that which foretells, history which informs us of the, with regard to the future, again, that we might improve it. And there are many days in history that have had a profound effect on the human race, which has brought great improvement. You might think of the discovery of bacteria some 350 years ago, yet it took almost another 200 years before Louis Pasteur proved that bacteria caused disease. But what a pronounced, profound effect that has had on mankind and our well-being. Yet that's not the greatest day in history. The greatest day in history isn't really about preventing disease or achieving great scientific things. The greatest day in history, we just sang about it. It's crushing death to death. It's this idea that the greatest day in history is the day that death died. Some might say that's a foolish statement. We still see death all around us. Well, I think by the time we're done with this thought, I, I hope we can all realize we have no reason to fear death. Its pain, its sting has been put away. If we think about it, and others have used this example, history is actually two words, his story. In his story, God has stepped into time. He's come out of eternity and stepped into time and has done something which has eternal consequences. Uh, learning from history, you know, Winston Churchill famously said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, I might say, if you ignore his, that is God's story, you are doomed not to repeat it, but doomed to an, an inevitable and tragic eternity. What is his story, this, this truth given for us? Indeed, it is the fact that he was indeed given for us. As Abraham told his son, God will provide himself a sacrifice.
payment has been given for us. You know, there was a time when the earth was perfect. The plants were perfect, the animals were perfect, even all of mankind was perfect, both of them. Then tragedy struck. Perfection was destroyed by Adam and Eve in their unwise use of free will, for they used it to disobey God, to fail to believe God. What had been perfect was now corrupted, and we could no longer have intimate fellowship, direct fellowship with the God of creation. We're separated from God by our wrongdoing, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 59. It is our iniquities which have created a separation between ourselves and our God. From our standpoint, we're helpless and we're hopeless. You might think that if life truly ended with physical death, perhaps we would even look at that as a, as a release from the sufferings of earth. But that's not an option. We're eternal. We are created, each of us, as eternal creatures. We do have a beginning, but we have no end, not even in physical death. We're going to exist forever after that physical death. I know many today reject this uh, truth, but you know the Bible tells us, and in Ecclesiastes 3.11 notes that God has set eternity in their hearts. That's our hearts, the hearts of the world. And the truth that all humans have eternity set in their hearts is evidence that no matter where you go in this world, there's religion. Again, as I've said before, depending on how you want to define them, there's somewhere between three and 5,000 religions in the world. Some people claim that's a, a proof that there isn't a God. I'd say, no, it's a proof that the human heart understands eternity and is looking to be reconciled to God. At its core, it reveals how God has given us a conscience that does turn even unregenerate men to the point of looking for him. The question is whether we will humble ourselves and receive God according to his plan, or will our pride cause us to prefer some man-made plan, some man-made traditions? There are those who claim there's many paths to God, and I would remind them of the verse which is repeated in Proverbs. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end of its way is death. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and we're told at the end of each day, God saw what he had created, and it was good. And at the end of the six days, he said, it is good, it is very good. Again, it was a, it was a perfect world. Then the perfection became flawed, and death was born. Death did not exist in this world before that time. Now, we could think of Satan and his demons who had been pronounced dead, at their fall, yet there was no death in the world at this point. God knew of it and warned that that was the consequences for disobedience when he said, if you take and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, the day you eat of it, thou shalt die. You know, God has never made anything that was flawed, yet he has made angelic beings and mankind with free will. His design and desire was that we should love him, but if you think about it, love can only exist in an environment where there is the chance for there to be a loveless relationship, maybe even one filled with hate. 
Love requires free will to have any validity. And we see that in both groups, the angelic beings and mankind, some have chosen to love God and to be obedient, to seek after him, and others have chosen to rebel. We know that God passed judgment on Adam and Eve. And he told them, you are made out of the dust, and to the dust you will return, because you were disobedient. That was the day that death was born. It came into the world. They spiritually died that day. Their spirit had been alive. They had close fellowship with God. Their physical death would not happen for till long after that. But that day, death came into the world. And sadly, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were stained with sin and death. That has come to us all. We're all corrupted. And our impending death is the proof of that. You know, in Romans 5.12, we're told, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans 3.23 puts it very succinctly, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't run into too many people who say they've never sinned, but there are some who say, well, I'm not much of a sinner. You know, John would say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 6.23 takes it to the next level. It tells us again, reiterates that promise from God, the wages of sin is death. Gloriously, that verse finishes with the promise, the cure. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the result of death, which has come through sin and through Adam, not only brings physical death of the body, but it also results, as I mentioned, in spiritual death. In essence, when we're physically born, we're born with a stillborn spirit. Spiritual death can be described as separation from God. Again, that's why there's so many religions in the world. By our very nature and by the the power of our conscience, we recognize we have been separated from our God. In Ephesians 2, 1, we're told, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, that's obviously not talking about bodily death because the sinning spoken of is taking place in a body which is physically alive. In Romans 8, 10, we're told, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. That would be the person who their spiritual death has been done away with. They've been given spiritual life. They now have fellowship with God. You know, the news gets worse, if you can imagine it. It isn't just a future physical in the current spiritual death which we're suffering from, but in a horrific eternal death that will result if we physically leave this life without our spirit being made alive. If we die with our spirit still dead, that is separation from God, then we will spend all eternity in the separated state. And the place of our abode will be that horrific lake of fire. I spoke of the perfection of the original creation and how it was ruined by sin. There is a time coming when God will restore perfection to this creation, but within that perfect perfection is gonna be a place where all those who are separate from God will be forever 
um, in a jail, as it can put it that way. It's going to be confined to that space, all that is wicked, all that is separate from God. And we're told the smoke of their torment arises forever and ever. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Well, a physical death here on earth is the separation of the body from spirit, and spiritual death is our separation from God. That eternal death is a death that has no cure and no repair. Scripture is specific and unyielding. We must avoid the second death or we will endure it forever. The good news is God has made a way. He has provided the solution to our problem, our appointed destiny with death. For all who seek and believe him, God will remove the spiritual death which separates us from him now. And that will protect us from the second death, the eternal death. With regard to those who believe and accept, God indeed has put death to death. As we just sang, death has been crushed. You know, no sane, rational person will ever deny that we are all going to endure a physical bodily death at some point. Those with wisdom will at least consider the notion of life after this death that we're going to face. The truly wise will abandon all human pride, hope, religion, and tradition, instead clinging to the truth of Scripture and the eternal sure hope that it gives. Why do we cling to Scripture? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. That speaks to us. He has promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. That as the scripture goes in our ears and into our heart, we hear and we can respond. He stirs our conscience. And we sang about this trade which has been made. You know, we, we think of death and it's ironic that our release from the sting of death comes through death. God sent his own son to die in our place. Jesus has taken upon himself the death that we were supposed to embrace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he, speaking of Jesus, he who knew no sin was made to become our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I often explain to people, it's like this. God looked at me and said, Russ, you're full of sin. You've got no righteousness. But look at my son Jesus. He's full of righteousness and has no sin. Let's make a trade. I'll take your sin and give it to Jesus. And I'll take his righteousness and give it to you. I thought, what a great deal for me wasn't so good for Jesus. I thought, why would he do that? Love. Romans 5, 8 says that God commanded his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. The wrath of that second death, the eternal death of the lake of fire. You know, if we agree with God in this exchange, God then sees us as already dead in his son. That's a reason we don't have to fear death. We're already dead if we're in Christ. God sees us as pure when he looks upon us. Again, Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, 
Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's that righteousness that's been given to us in that exchange. When my sin went to Jesus, his righteousness came to me. 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. We're told, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. His very name, Jesus, Yahushua in the Hebrew means God is our salvation. Not only has Christ died for us in God's eyes again, we have died with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and verse 17. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judged that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The operative word there is if. If we're in Christ. And you have to ask yourself, am I in Christ? If we are in Christ, our old man of sin has died with Christ, and we have become new creatures, pure in the eyes of God. Romans 6, 7 tells us, for he that is dead is freed from sin. When we die with Christ, we're also resurrected with him. And we sing about the resurrection today. What a glorious thought for an empty tomb. We're resurrected with Christ and receive the blessings of eternal life, free from the debt, from the penalty of our sins. Colossians 2, verse 12 to 14 tells us, having been buried with him in baptism, we heard about that this morning, being, you know, in Ephesians 4 we're told we're baptized into the body of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Our debt was canceled and paid in full when our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ. Have your sins been nailed to the cross with Christ? Where he proclaimed, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. You know, the great news continues in the next chapter, Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Romans 6, 8 to 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. We've been set free if we're in Christ. You know, it's been said religion sets rules, but Christ sets free. We're told that in Romans chapter 8, a glorious chapter that begins where there's no separation. There's no, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and it ends with there is no separation from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It tells us, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. Free from what? Free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You know, are any of us depending on our good works, or which would be obedience to the law, or maybe our, our own suffering to save us or to aid our entry into heaven? I tell you, such belief is worse than useless. It really, it's a, a deep insult against the living God. When we place value on our own works, we're demeaning the work of Christ. We're saying it was not sufficient. Paul speaks to that in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We've been talking about being in Christ. And here we have the, the other truth. If we're in Christ, then Christ is in me. Paul says, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Again, we're reminded by Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You know, those verses don't say, I, I live by faith of, in the Son of God and by good works or and by suffering. And make, it's made clear in those verses that the work of justification is the Lord's alone. There's plenty of verses in the Bible which speak to works, but they have to do with reward, not justification, not our eternal security of our salvation. It's only the shed blood of Christ which puts away sin. No work, penance, restitution, or suffering of man can ever relieve even the smallest smidgen of sin. And we heard read this morning from Matthew 28 of the women who came to the tomb and in great fear the angel said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. We heard earlier today also a reading from Luke 24, where the angels asked the women, Why seek ye the living amongst the dead? We're told in the 10th chapter of Hebrews that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. 
from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. You know, God is uh, the perfect accountant. He knows where every debt is hidden. And he will make sure that every single one of them is paid. But he's also the most honest accountant in all creation. He will not require, nor will he accept the second payment for a debt that has already been paid. <laughs> we, we sang, another hymn we sang, uh, quotes a verse that I, uh, I use very often. Revelation 1.18. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and death. That is, Jesus is holding the keys of the grave and of death. He's got complete control. He has ownership of the grave and of death. The greatest day in history, the day that death was put to death. The work is done, the tomb is empty, the Savior is alive and at the right hand of the Father on high. And he's waiting to hear waiting to hear from you, perhaps. Where will you be for all eternity? John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Again, if we think of the verbs in John three sixteen. God loved, God gave. What are we asked to do? Believe and receive. I believe I have eternal life. Do you? You know, perhaps there's somebody listening today that's never come to Jesus. He is calling you to come to him. Scripture is very clear as we've read. You can know where you will spend eternity. And if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, why not settle that issue today for all eternity? Make this the greatest day in the history of the world for you. You know, if you can agree with God you're not perfect and deserve punishment for your sins, the, the wonderful news is God has already made provision for your forgiveness. He offers it to all. And as we've said, God did it because he has given the punishment that you deserve to his son that he might bear it in your stead. Jesus is the one who died in your place, taking all the punishment that you deserve just like he did for me. He has forever put away the debt of my sin and your sin if you're willing to let him. An appropriate prayer would be something like this. Perhaps you're willing to say it with me. Oh God, I am the sinner that Jesus died to save. Though I deserve the punishment, he died in my place, paying for every one of my sins, past, present, and future. He died for me, and yet you raised him from the grave to eternal life, proving you can give the life you promise 
I trust in Jesus now as my Savior and ask you to forgive me. Make me the person you would have me to be. I ask this and thank you in the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen. He is risen. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your scripture, the truth, and all the abilities that you have given us to look and to reason. We pray that you would equip us with an ever-strengthened conscience that we would choose wisely, that we would use the gifts that you have given unto us to bring glory to your name and to live with our thoughts turned towards eternity. Uh, give voice to us, Father, that we might sing praises of your Son who died that we might live. As the hymn writer said, he died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Bless us as we apart our ways today and let us go as your servants and your witnesses for, the, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As you heard, there's a, an Easter egg hunt over in the park across Indian Hill uh, for the children, and then a luncheon. I'm told that all are invited to, uh, to join us.